is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. It's a very tricky situation because South Africa, by the way, has ties with both countries. But in principle, I think that South Africa did the right thing on this Russia-Ukrainian issue by not siding with either side. That's Becky Mangomi Zulu, a professor of political science at the University of Western Cape, on President Cyril Ramaphosa saying Russian President Vladimir Putin has asked him to mediate with Ukraine. Details coming up. Also, the World Bank says South Africa is the most unequal country in the world and race is at the center of it. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says he has been asked to help mediate peace between Russia and Ukraine after having spoken to his counterpart, Vladimir Putin. Some analysts are questioning whether South Africa's ties to Russia could impact its neutrality. Linda Giftash reports from Johannesburg. The prospective role of mediator comes after the country abstained from a United Nations vote to reprimand Russia over its invasion of neighboring Ukraine. Becky Ngolazulu is a professor of political science at the University of the Western Cape. He says the request shouldn't come as a surprise. It's a very tricky situation because South Africa, by the way, has ties with both countries. But in principle, I think that South Africa did the right thing on this Russia-Ukrainian issue by not siding with either side. South Africa is being looked at as a country that does not believe in the use of force, but believes in negotiations. The presidency did not specify whether it was Russia or another party that made the request. This lack of clarity is just one instance contributing to questions about South Africa's neutrality. South Africa's International Relations Department issued a statement last month calling on Russia to withdraw its forces from Ukraine. Since then, the call has been removed from official statements and President Ramaphosa has taken a softer stance. Piers Pijou is a senior consultant on Southern Africa for the International Crisis Group. Putin uh, was very happy that uh, he had what Putin regards as a, an even-handed, balanced approach to this situation. That's certainly not the perspective from many other people. And it's inexplicable to some people why South Africa cannot take a firmer stance on calling for ceasefire. South Africa does have a reputation for conflict mediation. It stems from the peaceful transition out of its own racist apartheid regime to supporting other African nations in conflict like Sudan. But the ruling African National Congress Party that led those negotiations also has decades-old ties to Russia. Charles Nupin is an attorney and executive chairman for the consulting firm Stratoline. So the ANC's historical ties to the old Soviet Union and, and currently Russia may pose questions for the Ukrainians as to whether South African leader like Ramaphosa could be regarded as an honest broker. But I've got no doubt that if he were acceptable to all parties, he's certainly got the skill set and, and the right approach and the experience to lead a mediation delegation. However, Piju is not as certain of South Africa's current expertise. I think that there is a tendency to kind of try and live off the legacy of a post-apartheid South Africa that was birthed in negotiations. The question, though, remains whether South Africa really has the competencies and capacities to deliver on mediation. Regardless of who mediates negotiations, 
Nupin says there remains other questions on how it will play out. Under whose auspices would this mediation take place? Where would it be held? How would the table be set? And, you know, what would the mediation agenda be? Nupin says he imagines the first priority would be to get a ceasefire in place. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. Ukraine's ports are closed and much of Russia's grain supply to Africa is frozen by Western sanctions. This does not bode well for the continent's developing economies. Alex Smith is a food and agricultural analyst at the Breakthrough Institute in Berkeley, California. Before the Russian-Ukraine conflict started, he wrote an article titled A Russian-Ukraine War Could Ripple Across Africa and Asia. I started out by asking him if the ripple effect has already begun. Ukraine and Russia being two of the, main, two of the largest exporters of grains in the world, uh, having their, their complete export supplies being disrupted right now, uh, in the case of Ukraine, directly because of the invasion blocking uh, both the port systems and also uh, potentially even disrupting planting and harvesting seasons in the, in the upcoming months in Ukraine, there's a real risk that you know food shortages, food supply blockages, and just these disruptions are going to last. Uh, for Russia, similarly, the sort of crisis in the Black Sea has made exports of Russian wheat and other products um, difficult and completely disrupted in some cases as well. Uh, and then now Russia has actually recently uh, announced that they're they're looking to, to restrict exports of crucial goods. Today they announced that they're going to uh, they're they're restricting exports of wheat to Eurasian countries, uh, countries in Central Asia that are very much dependent on Russian agricultural production. And it may be the case that in, in the coming days Russia restricts exports to the rest of the world. This is a really significant problem for you know the Middle East, Southeast Asia, South Asia, but it's especially important right now for Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, countries like Congo, the Republic of the Congo, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo both rely on uh, Russian wheat specifically for more than 50%, and in the case of, of the Republic of the Congo, 75% of their total wheat supply. Tanzania, uh, Senegal, Mozambique, Cameroon, Sudan, they all rely on Russian and Ukrainian wheat. And there's a number of countries that, like, if you start adding all this together, the, the actual sort of disruption, the restriction of Russian wheat supply is going to be extremely hazardous for food security, for hunger, uh, and, you know, all of the other sort of social and um, economic aspects that these two things are sort of, these two things undergird in our lives. So, Alex, with the, you know, with in Africa especially, with the pandemic, droughts, floods, uh, jihadist attacks, political upheavals going on, and with the latest uh, Ukraine-Russian conflict, like you just mentioned, uh, how do African governments stop their developing economies from going under? Yeah, um, and you add into that list that you mentioned fertilizer prices being extremely high and having had been extremely high even before the invasion. Um, it's a real, it's a real sort of sub like crisis of crises. There's so many things going on. Um, in terms of like what governments can do right now, uh, they they can look towards buying uh, substitutes on the global market. This is just one direction they go. The problem is is that food prices are are a problem globally. It's not just uh, in these sort of acute specific places where food shortages are going to happen, but as as supply is reduced because of the innovation, prices are going to go up on the 
multinational organizations and also countries that are high productivity agricultural producers, um, countries like the United States, like Argentina and Australia, um, to, to supply and to sort of create, um, to, to sort of negotiate deals that can bring in a large amount of food now. Um, but in the sort of longer term, I think one, one thing this really sort of puts, makes clear is the, the necessity of agricultural development, the necessity of um, building out sort of large-scale, highly productive, um, highly productive agricultural systems that can deal with, that can both you know benefit from large global agricultural trade in terms of like bringing in foreign exchange dollars uh, or money, but also uh, sort of react to these kinds of crises going forward. That was Alex Smith, food and agricultural analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. He talked to me from Berkeley, California. The Western countries, including the U.S., have been trying to support transition to democracy in Africa, but Russian engagement in the African continent appears to be undermining such support. Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shadawi how Russian tactics to co-opt African leaders with limited checks and balances hurt local attempts to reform political systems in Africa. Undermining democracy is one of Russia's key objectives in Africa. You know, it's a central theme in their disinformation campaign. And in the process, it enables them to better prop up their illegitimate leaders, which enhances Russia's influence. And they do so sometimes very explicitly by interfering in elections. But by propping up these leaders by manipulating elections, Russia is effectively disenfranchising millions of Africans who are unable to select their own leaders or influence policies in ways that would be more beneficial to the majority of citizens. And it very much reveals the elite-based strategy that Russia is using. It aims to co-opt selective leaders who then benefit from the propping up and support they get from Russia. Russia gains influence in that process, but the real losers from that are the African citizens whose interests are neglected and, in fact, resources are exploited from that process. You know, once that partnership between the pliable African leader and the Wagner group as proxy for Russian interest, once that partnership is formed, it's very difficult to get them out because both sides have incentive to to deepen that relationship and that leadership is not going to be the one that's asking Russia to depart. And increasingly then African citizens have less leverage, less ways of pushing back against their leadership because they have the backing of this external force. So how did Russian tactics to co-op African leaders with limited checks and balances negatively impact civil society organizations' attempts to reform political systems in the African continent? Often we see this Russia support for an autocrat or a coup leader on the continent. And, you know, there are examples in Libya because of Russia's support for Khalif Tahaftar, who all along has been trying to reinstitute a strongman rule in Libya, of course, thereby enhancing Russia's influence. They have been an active actor in undermining the electoral process in Libya and efforts to create parallel governments. 
because Russia and their proxy do not want to see a democratic process take place in Libya. Mali had a democratically elected government under Ibrahim Keita. Then a Moscow-sponsored disinformation campaign between 2018 and 2019 helped to inflame the popular antipathy towards Keita, and it helped lay the groundwork for the coup we saw in August 2020. And in the process then, Russia was able to gain more influence because the relationship it had with the coup leaders, and this has come at the expense of democratic interest in Mali. You know, today, opposition leaders, civil society leaders have limited space in Mali to express their will and express alternative directions for where the country should go. And in Sudan, we've seen the popular revolution and call for change in 2019 this forced ousting of longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir. But rather than proceed with the transition, you know, through Moscow's support, the junta led by Lieutenant General Burhan has been holding on to power. You know, despite the massive economic crisis that the country faces, despite the ongoing protest on the streets in Khartoum and other cities. And again, it's not in the interest of citizens. It's not what citizens are calling for, but it's an attempt to cling to and sustain the old military-backed government that would enable Russia to continue to exert a lot of influence in that strategically important country. So through all of these cases, we're seeing a dramatic decline in the democratic space for opposition leaders to compete for elections and for civil society actors to speak up and have freedom of expression. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed Al-Shinawi. The World Bank says South Africa is the most unequal country in the world, and race is at the center of it. A report produced by the bank shows that 80% of the country's wealth is in the hands of 10% of the population, the majority of whom are whites. The report reveals that nearly 30 years after the end of apartheid, the black majority is yet to enjoy a significant share of the economy. Tusokumalo reports from Johannesburg. Inequality in Southern Africa surveyed 164 countries. It found that race is the key driver of inequality in South Africa. According to the study, the white minority who benefited from apartheid a system of segregation and economic exclusion that favored them, have the largest share of the economy due to their easy access to education and the labor market. This has been a benefit for a small number of people in high-paying jobs, while the majority are poorly paid. While many social economists agree with the World Bank report, others disagree. Gabriel Cruz is the head of campaigns at the South African Institute of Race Relations. He told VOA that unemployment and corruption are to blame for the gross inequality, not race. A crony capitalist regime took root, which in this country is called state capture, in which a few wealthy elites, both in private business and in the public sector and in government directly, worked together hand in glove to rob poor South Africans. However, Nikki Zomo, a resident of Soweto in Johannesburg, 
says that she has no doubt that race is a major contributor to inequality in South Africa. We as blacks, we are still where we were 25 years ago. Living conditions are hard. We have no water, no electricity, load sheddings every day. Unlike our fellow whites who have everything that they want. So I can say in South Africa, the wealth is still in the hands of the white people. The report also established that there is a 38% pay gap between men and women with the same qualifications. Land ownership was also found to be a big contributor to the inequality, especially in rural areas. As a result, over 70% of South Africa's population is receiving some form of social assistance from the government. Cruz says a specific program to target inequality is needed. Economic empowerment for the disadvantaged to figure out who is disadvantaged and look directly at actual disadvantage. Using that system, South African businesses could be incentivized to help the poor rather than, as is currently the case, where the incentives are to help people based on race, even if they are multimillionaires or billionaires. The World Bank is urging countries like South Africa to strengthen the quality of social services and come up with policies that will address the land question and the distribution of wealth and provide equal access to opportunities. Other countries of Southern Africa, including Botswana, Eswatini and Namibia, are also on the list of the top 15 most unequal countries. Tusukumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. Kenya has lifted COVID-19 prevention measures, including wearing face masks in public and restrictions on gatherings after sustaining a less than 1% positivity case rate. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Announcing the lifting of the measures Friday, Kenya's health minister, Mutahe Kagwe, said that among other provisions, people are exempted from wearing a face mask in public. There has been a lot of debate and discussions on the continued use of face masks as one of the containment measures. The mandatory wearing of face masks in open public spaces is now lifted. Like the rest of the world, Kenya imposed mandatory mask wearing in early 2021 to combat the spread of the novel coronavirus. Failure to wear a mask came with a fine of up to $200. The ministry urged the public Friday to continue hand washing and the use of hand sanitizers to curtail the spread of the virus within the community. Kagwe called on people to maintain their distance from others and wear a mask to avoid getting infected. People are encouraged to maintain social distancing and avoid crowding in public spaces to ensure risk of spread is limited. We, however, encourage the use of masks in all indoor functions. The East African nation has vaccinated at least 16.5 million people so far. More than 7 million people are fully vaccinated. More than 26 million are yet to get a single dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Kenya is one of five countries with the help of the African Union said to benefit from the establishment of a facility that will produce COVID-19 and other vaccines. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. A senior employee with the Zimbabwe Media Commission has been acquitted of charges of breaching the Immigration Act to help two foreign journalists enter Zimbabwe illegally.
Reporter Kudzanai Musenge brings us more on the story. A magistrate at the Bulawayo Magistrates Court on Thursday acquitted Tabang Manika, a registrar with the Zimbabwe Media Commission, or ZMC. The commission accredits all journalists in the country. Manika was charged with violating immigration laws along with freelance journalist Jeffrey Moyo, who is being tried separately. They were accused of helping New York Times journalists Christina Goldbaum, an American, and Joao Silva from South Africa enter the country illegally after fraudulently acquiring accreditation for them in May 2021. They were deported four days after they arrived. Manika had pleaded not guilty to the charges at the start of the case in January. The prosecution later amended the charges after his lawyer, Lyson Ngube, sought to have them dropped. Ngube said he was happy the court found his client not guilty. The state appeared today with paperwork purportedly giving the impression that it has been amended, but in fact the amendment is even worse. It was even worse off than the initial paperwork which we had been given. As such, we made an application to the court to have the charges quashed and our client found not guilty and acquitted, which the court agreed with us on, and as such, our client has been found not guilty and acquitted. Manika said he's happy to be a free man. My concentration was uh, fighting this case and it has taken up a lot of resources, especially the traveling between cities. Uh, Blaue is, is very far away. But I'm quite happy and ecstatic that uh, it has come to its finality and uh, the courts of law have ruled that um, I'm not guilty. Manika and Moyo spent over three weeks in police custody before they were granted bail in August 2021. The ruling in Moyo's case will be made on March 15th. If convicted, he faces a maximum sentence of up to 10 years imprisonment. In a statement after the arrest of the two, New York Times said it was deeply troubled over Moyo's prosecution, which it said appeared designed to suppress press freedom in Zimbabwe. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists was among several groups that also condemned Moyo's arrest, saying it was an example of the continued harassment of journalists in the country. Reporting for VOA from Lawayo, I am Kudzanaim Sengi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America. The Basketball Africa League is back. Voice of America joins forces with Africa's Premier Men's Basketball League to bring you the second season of the BAL. It is game on March 5th, 2022. 38 games, 12 teams leaving it all on the court in Senegal, Egypt and Rwanda to determine the 2022 season champion. Tune in to VOA 24-7, FMs, and to our radio and TV affiliates for some action. Pre-game, play-by-play, post-game, daily highlights, delivered by our finest commentators. Basketball Africa League 2022 on Voice of America. May the best team win.
Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station Saturdays and Sundays at 